Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello, and uh, whatever proper salutation of the day it would be if you were listening to this on the Temple Beth Am podcast asynchronously. Chapter 8, beginning of chapter 8 of the book of Exodus, and one large amphibian, or maybe it's a reptile. Reptile or amphibian? Amphibian. I'm supposed to start with a midrash. Yeah. But let me just get let, let me just get us going. Um, so we're on. Thanks, Hector. Uh, we're about to do the Rashi's on verse two of the um, of the chapter. Um, let's um, let's just read verse two again, so we can remind ourselves where we are. We just had a couple of verses with God telling Moses to tell Pharaoh what is going to happen with plague number two, and now it's actually happening. So in verse one of chapter eight, God says, "Okay, let's actually begin this thing." And in verse two, Vayet Aharon et Yado, Aaron extended his hand, Al Mitzrayim on the waters of Egypt, Vata'al Hatzfardea, and the frog, <coughs> and the frog came up, Vatchas at Eretz Mitzrayim, and it covered the land of Egypt. That's where we left things off. Uh, Larry Herman. We forgot to bring the printed version, which we'll try to bring next week, in, or in two weeks. Um, and I won't take too long because I'll only do the first two. Take as much time as you want. I don't think, you, well, we'll see. So the following aid to recall the 10 plagues was written by Rav Raphael Akiva Ben Pinchas, better known as the Rap Rav. And the manuscript was discovered by my son Reuven and myself in 1994 in Jerusalem. And it goes, Eser Makot, Eser Makot, the Egyptians were smote with the Eser Makot. They could run, they could hide, we had God on our side. We kept them coming until they cried, go on, get out of here, leave our fold, take our silver, take our gold. Dam, Svardea, Kinim, Arov, Dever, Shechin, Barad, Arbe, Choshech, Makapich, to convince them of the power of God. This should get him ready. God gave a fair warning, but Paro laughed at Moshe, so blood struck the next morning. The fish were lying belly up in the mud, but they weren't sunbathing. They died in the blood. The Egyptians couldn't drink. There was panic everywhere. They bought water from the Jews. Heck, what did they care? Esamakot, Esamakot. The Egyptians were smote with the Esamakot. Blood didn't work. Paro thought it was a trick, just a bit of magic, old Aaron with his stick. What's next? Listen here, what he did to make him fear. Now Rashi says it was just one big frog, but he must have been sitting on a mighty big log. This weren't no Kermit all cute and green. No, this Svardaya was ugly and mean. The frog spit out smaller ones. The kids got frog flu. But old Paro just said, let him eat frog stew. Esther Makot, Esther Makot. The Egyptians were smoked with the Esther Makot. It goes on for eight more, eight, eight more. Um, it's very clever. And do you want to give a midrash on your midrash? <laughs> Just um, somehow back then, with less knowledge than less access than I had now, certainly in Safaria, I must have come across the Rashi uh, saying the discussion that it was one one frog and include one big frog. One big frog. I I just want to say, what prompted it was an invitation from Noam Tzion and his family. This Mm -hmm. was the first year that we were in Jerusalem after making Aliyah. They, they were our neighbors and they invited us to their home for Pesach and they said, but you have to bring something. That, and that's what you brought? And that's, what that's great. I think it'd be, it'd be a very nerdy and learned Pesach Seder if when you got to the who knows one, he went down to, you know, uh, two of the tablets that Moshe brought and one is the frog. One is the frog. <laughs> one is the frog. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. We'll do that. <laughs> That covered the entire land. Rosemary, uh, take the microphone. I was, I was just the other day looking the uh, the bed of uh, Nile. So it comes from Ethiopia and Sudan. So is it like it comes Ethiopia, it stops, that's water. And then when it enters in Egypt, it becomes red. And then when it goes Sudan, it becomes again white or everybody was punished. I mean, Egypt was so big, maybe they... They had over uh, governing Sudan and uh, Ethiopia. I'm not sure. 
Um, is it like, and now Larry was saying that oh. Jews sold water, so isn't that the water goes in Egyptian mm -hmm. hand, it should become bread again? Right. It's very interesting and hard to kind of line up the expansion of the text with what you think might have actually been happening in real time at the, you know in that in that era. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, someone is not bottom left. One second, everyone. Um, standing room only the past couple of weeks I know, I know. I care. Um I don't know what we're what we're supposed to think of the geography in terms of how much of that corner of Africa that era of Egyptian monarchy ruled, um, and where the borders were. And I, I don't know if we're supposed to be thinking this. I don't know if we're supposed to be thinking of this as sort of like a regional empire, right? Like, like if you you know, back then I would have I would guess that a smaller amount of space would feel bigger to be the the emperor of the yeah, man, didn't just, know what was yeah. like a thousand um he, he didn't know it was a thousand miles away etc so i don't know i don't i don't know how we're supposed to think about that i think we're mostly supposed to be thinking about what what message about the way the world operates and 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 god's relationship with with tyrants but i think i think those are the meta messages are supposed to be emerging and it's hard for me at least to map it onto a map even though we're so keyed into borders and boundaries right now. Um, okay, let's uh, let's actually look at the Rashi that that is has the midrash we've been referring to. Uh, Larry, do you want it? Sure. So it's the it's the Rashi on verse two of chapter eight, Vata al Hatsfardeya, which literally means the frog arose. Sfardeya chat haita. There was one really only. There was one frog. Bayu makin ota. Um, and um, he was the one that, wait, and, and they were struck by him? They struck him. Who's they the they and who's the him? And it's actually a her. Ah, they, right. They struck, they struck her. Who's the they? Uh, the Egyptians, maybe. Right. So there's one giant frog, one, one frogzilla emerges. And according to the Midrash that Rashi is culling from and, and sort of, truncating the Egyptians tried to like attack it they would ota. they would they would smack it what would happen okay he um I don't know the word spray you have that in um throughout the book of Ayikra right that the Kohen would spray the blood of the of the um of the sacrifice so lehatiz is to create a spray or to spray out spritz is probably the right word yeah so split into nikhilim nikhilim which are swarms right did so you know the word nikhil no i didn't either so i just want to show you what jastro says about it because it was i always like learning new um new roots hold on one second um so do you know that root from modern hebrew nikhil i'd never heard of it either so this is what jastro says look on the screen so Nun, so this one over here, uh, Nachil, he says it's from the root chul or halal, which kind of got converted into nachal, and it can mean a basket because a chul or a halal is a is an opening and a cavity, so it could mean a basket, which is a cavity of holding things. And the second definition is a beehive. Interesting, and it's I think the jump is cavity holder beehive. And what do bees do? They swarm. So it turned into. The word swarm, even though originally had apparently had nothing to do with swarm, that's my guess on the um, on the uh, etymology here, and originally referring to a swarm of bees. So Rashi is just using it uh, unselfconsciously as if it just means a swarm. Okay, that was a new root for me. Is this kanes like Knesset? Is that this inverted or mine? Where do you see kanes? In the Rashi. And. Oh, when we get when we get there, we'll get there in a second. Um, okay, so keep reading, Larry. So, so, so he want be one big frogzilla. The Egyptians would smack it, and in response to their smacking and trying to kill it, the opposite would happen. Right? He would spray out these swarms and swarms of other what? Frogs. Right. So this is Rashi's treatment of the midrash and how we it's it's 
appropriate linguistically, grammatically to say it was a frog. And it's also appropriate to say that eventually there were frogs in his bed and frogs in his head because one frog turned into many frogs because we all know that when you hit a hit of frogzilla, many frogs come out. Everyone knows that. Why what? Why did he come up with this swarms of swarms of whack-a-mole swarms? Wait, microphone, please. Oh. All right. Why? My question was why it's kind of a it's weird. Solving the problem that, well, that there was Fred, one. Don't speak, up, don't speak around the table unless it's a microphone. Everyone Very hard to do. Really wants to be a part of this. Yeah. My question was why. It sounds like a crazy, you know, whack-a-mole swarms of, you know, hit it on the head and it sprays around. It's in in this one sentence, it says it has frog tardea in the singular, not in the plural. So Rashi following the Midrash is trying to explain why it has it in the singular here. So in the beginning, there's one frog, but the real plague is that there are lots of frogs. I think a running, a running prism through which to understand Midrash is that there are two legitimate whys for every Midrash. One is, why do you feel the need to ask this question on the verse? And the second is, why is this your answer to that question, right? And sometimes we just kind of accept the process because it's not as fantastical. But the process is always going on. And by the way, you could say the same thing of every sermon that any rabbi gives. Why is this the thing in the verse or in the Parsha that is nudging or troubling or motivating him or her? And then why is this what he or she is wanting is doing with it? The former question is one of methodology. And the second question is one of philosophy and character and, and value system, right? So you know, how do I determine, you know, when I'm teaching on Sudash Lishit Shabbat afternoon, which verse I'm going to go deep into? Well, something catches my as, 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 as deserving a question, and that's the first why. And then why, how am I going to teach it in such a way that, it's, that I'm teaching it differently than someone else? What, what's the Rabbi Adam Klickfeld way of resolving the, the problem through the other sources? This is a particularly wild one, but it's the same process. The first why is, why does verse two have the word frog in singular and verse three has it in plural? That's first why. And the second why is why it says, oh, I know a midrash that explains it. And listen, it, it, we're all in, Rashi might say, on the metaphysics, we use that word, of this whole story. So this is not even that much more crazy than the other stuff. And it resolves the grammar. Now, the second one is harder for me to answer, but I'm going to open other people's responses. What's the sermon here? Is there anything in this image that is more than just saying, ah, we resolve singular plural, right? And it, besides the bizarreness of it, do we gain anything in our understanding of the story, understanding of God, sermonically, with this particular answer to the second why? Another hand. So I see Larry, Sue, Rosemary, and Rick, I see your hand. I didn't see it before. I apologize, but we'll get to you. Go ahead. Well, I can see a whole drosh about the frogs representing our imperfections, our problems, and when we simply try to beat them, they multiply into many, many things. So we need to contain them as opposed to trying to beat them down. Great, great. And, 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 and who knows if that was conscious or unconscious in the minds of the people writing this Midrash, right? Is, is, a, is plague operating on two levels here, right? Plague as plot line in the story, plague as concept to reckon with in our lives, right? Very possible. Sue, Rosemary, and then Rick. Well, you know, partially ditto, and um, that's exactly what I was thinking. And it's a, a a sermon about the human condition, and how you know immediately my thoughts went to you know cancer cells. Mm. You know, unless you get to this, unless you unless you somehow or another get to the root of the problem, and in this case, the root of the problem is that Pharaoh has mm. to let the people go. Mm. And so, if you don't get to the root of the problem, you will. You know, you will multiply the mm. the you know that thing. Great, like a unwitting like a an unwitting pinata. Like mm. you think you can defeat this, but the more you hit it, the more you realize that you're you're, you're actually going to be swarmed because you're not dealing with the very thing that is causing this. Great, Rosemary. Um, I think the people who have written either they have seen or heard, so they are repeating what they have seen. Mm -hmm. But the original effect comes from God, and there is a pattern here with all the uh, plagues. Uh, he does something simple and Pharaoh said, oh, we can do, we are also, we have witches to do that or 
um, scientists, but then they can't face it because there's the power of God. This is the way God shows itself. At the beginning, he sends the snake. They make a snake, but this snake eats them. Then the water. And then the frog, he sent just one frog. And they say, oh, that's nothing. We can kill that frog. Right. But the moment they hit, that's where the God's miracle comes out. So there, it shows in a way always the power of God. Good. And with that in mind, before we get to you, Rick, everyone open back to, ver to chapter 1, verse 12. Earlier, Rashi had made reference to the fact that, you know, originally when the Israelites began to uh, present to him as numerous he said, let's deal wisely with them. In some ways, this Midrash is a, either a macrocosm or a microcosm or, or a mirror of the process that began this whole narrative. Chapter 1, verse 12, the Chasher Yanuoto, as much as the Egyptians would oppress them and smack them down and try to make them smaller, they would increase, the and they would, frankly, swarm out by Akutsumi Israel, and they would, and the Egyptians you know, got more sickened of them. So, whether or not the original author of this midrash is thinking sermonically in the direction that you were talking about it larry like like the plagues of our lives that might be too metaphorical for them it's certainly likely that the authors of that midrash are in are intending it to be evocative of the beginning of the master story that we're in which is if the the more the enemies try to reduce the presence of us and god the opposite's gonna happen and the, they couldn't write that if they didn't have the grammatical problem. The grammatical problem does have to be resolved, right? They couldn't just say, well, I'm going to say it happened like this. Ah, it ends up resolving an issue in the verse, but there's probably something else hovering. Uh, Rick and then Barbara. Hi. Um, so it's not just the uh, noun, let's fardea, it's also the verb vata'al is in singular Correct. and vatachas is in singular. So it's not like it, it was vaya'alu uh, or yeah, and then hatsfardad. Then it would be really weird that the verb didn't match the noun, but at least the verb matches. And then vatachas, it's, it's, it, it's not the plural of that, vatachasu uh, or whatever that would be at Eretz Mitzrayim. So um, again, I, I wanted to thank. I think it was Susan from last week who said, well, he didn't use the stick. He only used his hand, which I'd never noticed before. Uh, there wasn't the mate in Aaron's hand. So that's why there was only one frog. I really like that, um, that addition. So, um, yeah, that's what I want to say. Thanks, Rick. Barbara? It, it seems to me as if an awful lot of what Rashi writes is, um, is Midrashah. Um, stories that, that that he made up just to try to explain things. Now, maybe he took it from some other people as well. Sometimes he, he has just plain explanation of things. And sometimes like this, he makes up stories to try to explain it. We, and how there's no way we can explain why he made up these or these stories, because it's how many years ago that he did it. We can't ask him, why did you do it this way? We can't ask him. Nice haircut, by the way, Barbara. We can't <laughs> ask him, but because there are scholars much more learned than I, we've they've there are annotated versions of Rossi that trace the sources of his midrash material. Sometimes when Marshall Kramer's in class, he brings us the original midrash, and there are usually more than one. Almost every agadic narrative midrash that appears, at least in one place in rabbinic literature, appears more than one. Almost all. There are unique situations that it only appears in this one collection, but if it appears in Midrash Rabbah, it probably appears in Yalkut Shimoni and, and, and this collection as well. And Rashi knew them all, how he had them all in his library in, in France, Germany. I don't know. He knew them all. And then he is doing, he, he is a, a synthesizing and, and distilling is probably a better word. Distilling the one that he thinks both, <laughs> both answers question one, why is the verse written this way? And is a significant answer to him of question two, what are we supposed to learn from this, right? Now, sometimes, actually most of the times when Rashi works midrashically, he presents the midrash, we've discussed this many times, as pshat, like this is what he thinks the verse means. Sometimes we see a window that, and this may be satisfying to you, Sue, that even Rashi knew he was talking weird stuff because he presents it and then he says, oh, and, and yet this is probably what it really means. 
So with that in mind, Larry, keep going. So first he says, Zem Midrasho, so that's the Midrash. Right, that's he, the crazy Midrash, right? So he's even citing the Midrash, and he cites Sanhedrin, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't look up. But then he says, Uvshuto uh, but, but the Peshat of this is, we, we can say. Right, and, bas- and so he's speaking to you, he's saying, like, I just gave you a Midrash, but wink, wink. What, what does the verse really mean? Here, here's what it really means, but, did, but wasn't that great? But wasn't that great, right? I mean, it, he's sort of doing that, right? He's not doing it with, in a jocular way, but I think he's doing it in a way saying, that's a crazy, nutty image even for me. There's another way to resolve the verse. Here it is. So, Sheruts, So, what I think that means is a swarm of frogs, I want to talk about Sheruts in a second, um, you use a singular verb, a singular, a singular, singular noun to refer to them. Right. So, as if he's saying the phrase Vata'al Hatsfardeya, the frog arose, is shorthand for the swarm of frogs arose, right? And the word swarm, which, which represents a plurality, yes. is a singular noun. Interesting that he uses the word swarm here because swarm is masculine and vata'al is feminine, but, but whatever, right? He's saying the singularity is referring to the single swarm of many frogs. So that's like in a dozen bagel. Uh, like a dozen oh. bagel. Sorry. A dozen bagel. We don't say it, we say a dozen bagels. My mother says. Oh, right, one, one, she does? Yes, she's like bagels. Or Esser Shekel. <laughs> or, or I think Diane mentioned last week, the sheep, the sheep arose. Right. And it can be anything. But the word Sherutz is from Sheritz, which is, I think from Parshat Shmini is where we talk about Sheritz. Swarmy things. Swarmy things, which are creepy crawlers or jukim or whatever, which mm-hmm. we don't eat. Right. So those are the... So, but I guess it means here, the sheruts means the swarm of those things. Correct. And then he goes on and he says, V'chein tihi akinam harchisha. So he's talking about lice. Right. So let's look ahead of that. Look ahead to verse 14, same chapter. Everyone has the book of Shemot in front of them, so you just go ahead to it. We'll, we'll just go there because he's pointing us that way, but we'll eventually get to it. Yeah, just like 12 verses later. So the Which verse, I'm sorry? 14. Chapter 8, verse 14. Oh, 8, 14, sorry. The um, magicians did the same thing. So this is going to, what's about to happen on Plague 2, Plague 2, Plague 2. <laughs> <laughs> I took Plague and Frog <clears throat> and turned it into a Plague. Um, what's about to happen in Plague 2 is going to happen in Plague 3, where the Egyptian magicians are also going to do it, which is, which is funny every single time, because they're going to show their power by making it worse for Egyptian citizenry um, with, their, with their spells or their uh, staffs. Lahotzi atakinim, to bring out the lice, below yacholu, but they weren't able to. hakinam. We're going to spend longer on this phrase when we get there, but it's because hakinam so hard to break down what that word means because the plural of lice are kinim, right? Dam, svardeya, kinim. I don't even know what the singular word for li- lice is in Hebrew. Rabbi. Louse. What? Rabbi, in, uh, in 12, it's lechinim without the yud. In 13, it's hakinam with no yud, but the vowels change. And then also chinim with the yud. And then in 14, it's hakinam. It's hakinim once with the yud, hakinam without the yud. So um, when we get to that verse, yeah, look at this back and forth. It's hard to render hakinam into a single English word. It doesn't mean the lice plural. I don't think it means the louse. I think it means like the 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 phenomenon of lice, the lice, the liceness. Right, but it's turned into like the word refer- refer- repre- the singular word representing the multiplicity of lice. Sue, when you when you microphone here, when you click on it in Safari Hakinam, it yeah. doesn't go to lice at all. It it uses cane as this, as if it's a, a 
a king. And it says, therefore, thus, just so, therefore, so as, then, for as much. Right. It's one of the words in the Torah about which there is true enduring machloket as to literally what it means. There are many words where, where there are shades of meaning. They're like biblical scholars are really split. It, it seems overly convenient that you have a word that has the letters of lice in it. In this part of the Torah, doesn't mean lice, but there's no form that hakinam falls into. Rashi is reading it as if the word is made from the root that means lice, but it's but it's a singularity. I see your hand, Barbara. Let me just let um, uh, um, Larry finish it. So then he says v'chein v'tehi hakinam. Um, he's saying that that word, the hakinam, is referring to what? Ha. Oh, harichisha. Harichisha. Now, harichisha is the synonym for a shuitza, like a swarm of them. Like, I says, see the next plague. It also doesn't say that the lices. I know lices is already plural, but I'm emphasizing it. That the lice were there, but the the swarm of lice, which according to Rashi is represented by the Hebrew word hakinam, right? And then he gives us a couple of old French. And so I'm always happy that um, um, Rosemary's here when we have that. So um, look, keep, we'll read and then we'll, I'll share the screen and we'll look at it together. Rabbi? I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. Fidul Yara? I'm not sure what Fidul Yara, I mean, it's clearly a French word. Yeah. So, says, look, so look at the screen. So this is Rashi. This is Otsarlo as a Rashi. Fidulier. Uh, this is entry number 3075. So th th this is the telephone game here because it's, it's Rashi's, <laughs> Rashi's writing with Hebrew letters, old French, which we then convert into English letters or Arabic letters and then try to figure out what it means. So he says that the, the word in old French that is being conveyed by ah. that is pedolier. I never heard of that word, not that I know French, which is then translated into Hebrew in our book as Kfutsat Kinim, a group of, of lice. Now, I looked up pedolier in Google French Translate, and that's not what it means. <laughs> it means pedal. Um, Rosemary, any sense of what pedolier might mean referencing to swarms of lice? Let's give her a microphone or take the microphone. Okay, so... There's another word, similar, but it means like um, the people who walk and sell things. So uh -huh. that's why the... I would think, because ped has to do with like, yeah. like feet, yeah. So... PA is uh, foot and ped. But that's what but Rashi said, and Rashi would only say it. Remember whom Rashi <clears> was <throat> writing to? Rashi would only say it if the people to whom he was writing to would say, ah, it makes sense. So it must be that in the 11th century, that part of France... People are like, oh, that's a swarm of, swarm of lice, right? Something like no, that. The lice will be like puce, uh, but that has nothing to do with the word. And then one more, keep going, Larry, and I still see your hand, Barbara. Go ahead, Larry. In modern French, in, 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 in the vernacular, I guess. So look at the next entry on the screen. So, Grenouillère. Yeah, grenouille is good because grenouille. Microphone. Oh, grenouille is um, a frog. Oh, okay. And capo is the the other cro um, um, frog, toe, toe. which uh -huh. is toe. toe. Yeah. Okay. So but then, grenouille, we use it. And it means so maybe in that form it meant like a uh, you know a swarm of them, like a right. whole bunch of them, right? And it's and it's a singular French word he's saying, which refers to a multiplicity of frogs. It's like the community of the grenouille. Right. When I looked at, I just thought this was cute. I looked up grenouillere in Google for, uh, Translate, and it means a onesie. What so I'm like, it? that would change this, the image too. Like all of a sudden, this giant baby onesie came over Egypt. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, what, what? No, that works. I've been staring at a baby in that's the baby. It's not the onesie. Well, I checked the, the, the doctors called the little baby's frog right. in hospital. Oh, yeah. okay. there you go. Um, so this is actually one of my favorite Rashi's of all time because it resolves Vatahatsvardaya. <laughs> it has the image of the frogzilla. It has old French built into it. It's like, what, what more could you want from, from your religious life? Okay. Uh, Barbara, waiting patiently. Well, I, I just wanted to make a comment about the word lice versus louse okay. in English. 
We almost never use the word louse. The kid gets sent home from school. The teacher doesn't say, I found a louse on your kid's hair. The, the word is all is, is 95% of the time lice. Right. So maybe there's a relationship in Hebrew the same way yeah. that a lice and a louse get it are interchangeable. Right. I mean, of course, grammatically, there is a form for a singular louse, louse. I, I would guess, I don't know, that the no. primary reason why it's almost always re referred to the plural is that one is never dealing with a louse unless you right. insult about a person, right? But the phenomenon of lice is lice. If it was louse, it wouldn't be a big deal, right? If your child has right. louse, it's not a problem. The problem is that your child, if your child has louse, your child has lice. Um, As a general rule, that's true. Good. Uh, Sue, microphone. <laughs> I just looked up in Hebrew. One one kinim is a kina. A kina. Okay. A kina. So hakinam could be. Who when, knows? Who knows? Could it, be it, therefore. It's not, right. It's not a. <laughs> it's not a known word. Yeah. Given our sense of the root, but then again, when we say it's not a known word, where does our knowledge of Hebrew words come from? The Torah. So like it's 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 a it's in, it's Certainly. in the source. We just don't know how to render it. Okay. When you call a school like Ecole, mm -hmm. and the children who go there, it's Ecolier. So Grenouille, Grenouille. Ah, I was just uh, the... trying to nice. find Good. Oh. Okay. Um, that's verse two. Rashi's quiet for the next two verses, three and four. So um, let's jump into them. And then we'll see uh, if we get to the verse five already, which is the next Rashi. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to read verse three? Sure. And and the magicians did did this um with their secret arts right i remember that rashi twice already has dealt with latahem versus lahatehem and some people think that it refers to like whispers like lachash and some think it refers to their spells and some people think it refers to their actual wands but we don't have to go back in there but that word has appeared several times and it will continue to appear okay and they uh brought up the frogs on the land of Egypt. Good. Okay. So uh, straightforward mm -hmm. in some ways, and in some ways, we uh, Rashi's already dealt with with some of this mm -hmm. in the sense that he's already dealt with the fact of how we went from a singular frog to plural frogs. So he doesn't say that comment on this verse. By the way, that what we were saying before about hakinam, and some people read it as being from the word Cain. One of the reasons why people read that is because the word Cain appears throughout this narrative as well. They did so. So, um, so the, the 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 way the word Cain is used as an also or so or such in the in the entire narrative is feeding why some people think the word Hakinam, which we'll get to when we get to the Kinim, is related to Cain and not to Kina, and we have it here. And and they did so. They they did such right. Um, Okay, comments, questions of the verse? Rebecca, you're, you're, you got the mic and I see Rick's your hand also. So I can understand the magicians wanting to replicate um, the plagues and show they can do it too, but why would they replicate this <clears throat> and create more frogs? Right, and th this has happened several times throughout the plagues and you know, it, it makes you wonder, A, are we not understanding something about the verse, B, is the Torah not only punishing, not only telling the story of the punishing of the Egyptians, but lampooning them for being the Chelmites of the ancient world, right? Saying, look how smart we are. We, we can also bring frogs upon our people, right? So that, so they're, they're both, exactly. It does feel Monty Pythonish, right? Like it, it feels, it feels like God ends up being dominant as the power and also rendering it is so cathartic to think of your enemies as stupid and foolish particularly if you can't really 
shack, uh, you release yourself from the shackles. This does seem to be the epitome of foolishness, right? I, I, I can also beat up my own people, right? And, and it seems to be that's exact, it seems that's what the Torah is saying, although it's possible that vayasuchen chartumim means something else, but I don't know what else it would mean. Uh, I see Rick's hand, I see Joanna's hand, and I see Larry's hand. Hi. Uh, since you led us back to chapter 112, you have Cain's there. Cain Yerbeh, the Cain Yifrotz. I just wanted to underline that. Yeah, that, and Bray Sheet 2. We have, we have Cain's and Abel's. Right. Sorry, sorry. I had to. Uh, was that it, Rick? Yeah. Okay. Joanna? I think there's a very interesting comparison here between this verse and verse 11. In verse 11, with the plague of blood, we saw that Chachamim, Mechashvim, and Chartumim could all replicate the plague. Here, we're left with only the Chartumim being able to do it, and perhaps, you know, an evidence of how amazing God's power is that, like, Fewer of the Egyptians could replicate this one. Let's see what happens as we continue down the line. Great. And Joanna's referring to chapter 11 of the previous verse. And when we read that verse, we were asking ourselves, are they three categories, right? Or is it that Chachamim and Mechashvim are, are subcategories and, and Hartumim is the macro category? And we couldn't resolve that. But if we're seeing them as three categories, three different types of people, then it's interesting to imagine that, that the Chachamim and the Mechashvim were out of their league already. Right, but the only the, yeah, great, very interesting pickup, uh, Larry. As usual, I have no basis for what I'm going to speculate on. <laughs> so I don't know exactly how many of the plagues, but many more. We have the the Egyptian magician priests replicating or trying to replicate what Moses did, and we also have in or, some or what Aaron did, what, or what Aaron did. We also have some redundancy and some inconsistencies in the stories as we're going on and talking about the plagues. We already saw several of them, which kind of suggests to me that maybe it's a mashup of two different stories that have been threaded together. One is a story of simply Moses and Aaron displaying their magical abilities and the Egyptian priest coming back and saying, I can do that too. And then later on, a story about Makot themselves, about mm. plagues themselves that are harmful to the Egyptians. Because as you pointed out, it's kind of really weird to think that Pharaoh would be impressed with his magician's ability to discomfort himself and the Egyptians. Right. So I don't know if anybody, maybe you know, that maybe somebody has speculated that this too is a, is a combination of different, um, different narratives. Larry, you would have made a great 19th century Christian German biblical Christian. <laughs> <laughs> because because you're, 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 you're very attuned to where the text seems to have seams, right? And we've discussed this a lot before. The place where the text has seams is the same anchor for in one intellectual tradition, Midrash, and another intellectual tradition, biblical criticism, right? Because what you can't resolve by not allowing yourself to imagine the text anything but singular, you have to resolve by synthesizing it through Midrash. Right? Every once in a while, like Ibn Ezra will, will wink at you and say, mm, maybe this text doesn't all come together, but, but they can't really bring themselves there, including hundreds of years before biblical criticism. And so they resolve it by Midrash. And Midrash is a phenomenal synthesizer, but sometimes it's done fantastically. And then the 19th century German school said, maybe it's, it's you know, J-E-P-D, right? So th that this is very possible, um, a source that came together from many different sources. Yes. I hope I can still be counted in the minion. <laughs> well, well, we'll find out. It depends on if, if you need it as a 10th. Okay, Sue. Well, I've just, I've personally never th thought about this before, that this whole, I mean, I, I really, the, the whole that whole Pesach story and the Makota have always in my mind been, you know, God reigns these, you know, Moses and Aaron reigned these things through God upon the Egyptians. And this, this idea that the Egyptians were the amplifiers and really caused a, a tremendous amount of this suffering um, on their own people has me thinking again about 
you know, if we're trying to, if the, if the Torah is telling us a, stories always about, you know, the pitfalls of the human condition, then I'm just, I'm just thinking about how, you know, that that's something that happens to everyone that you cut off your nose to spite your face a mm, lot. Mm. It's, it's, you know, you, you just don't, you, you don't see what's coming mm. and you're busy reacting and, mm. and I just think maybe there's something, you know, even more wider here than, um, than frogs. That's great, Sue, right? They're like, you can think of the distinction between anger and stupid anger, right? Yeah. Like it's one thing to be angry that you're being outdone by, by this guy's gods, but stupid anger is to, is to show that you're as powerful by redoubling the impact on your own people, right? And I think you're right. I think we all, we're, we're, we all express stupid versions of emotions all the time that we don't stop and think. And, and, and our initial reaction as our, as our brainstem is operating has not really thought out right what how this might be made worse before our prefrontal cortex comes over and and, and hopefully um releases us from that uh, before norm speaks um larry and diane you pronouncing it makot right is that a detroit thing because it's close to canada it's supposed to makot is that are, are all your are all your cholomes like because canadians oh, pronounce it also like like brachot instead of brachot oh. is that a detroit thing no, Israel. Israel. Oh, it, oh, it's Israel. 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 Makot. Yeah. Ah. It's not. It's not all. It's always English. Right. So I know that Israelis pronounce it differently, but I also know that Canadians pronounce oh, the like, so, Avi would say like sort right, uh, right. Avi would say Avi Makot. Would say, yes. Makot. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know because like Detroit is like South Canada. So. Yeah. Um, South Canada. <laughs> when we talk about the concern about bringing more harm on their own people, I think that people who live in Western democracies tend to think that governments are concerned with the governed. And I don't think that mm. applies in many societies today. I don't think it applied in, in, in many societies at all back then Great. that the governed were not consulted, were not an issue of great concern. Um, they were simply there to support the ruling classes and they didn't care how much suffering was down below and that gets quite modern even in societies that we regard as democracies that's a great comment norm and and finally after teaching the class for so many years i get to reference braveheart um <laughs> you've been waiting uh, there, there's a great scene in braveheart um which Despite my feelings about about the, no, some of the, some of the actors now, I, I, I still I still I still am taken in by that movie. Um, Barbara Lipton came back. So one of the one of the grand battle scenes where the king actually appears. It's the it's the scene in which they're going to finally put down the Scottish rebellion. Um, after the king sends in the chalutzin, the shock troops, to like beat the the underarmed Scottish you know rabble rousers, they're all fighting, and then he says to his lieutenant, "Okay, like." fire you know fire fire the uh the arrows and the ten says but our our folks are already there so it's oh. it's gonna kill some of our it's gonna kill our our people and he says yes but it'll kill theirs too right like the, the king's the king's only um motivation is to retain his power not to spare his army his people right so yeah yeah but it'll kill theirs too so it's it's a it's a it's a great cinematic moment of what you were talking about, right? So maybe it didn't bother Pharaoh at all that his people were suffering more from the frogs, except that we're supposed to understand that Pharaoh was also suffering, right? Um, okay, great. But Rabbi Judy wants to talk, but she's just raising her hand instead Sorry. of pushing the button to raise her hand. Just saying. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, um, because I can't find the button. This is all so much an echo, and I'm going to include it at my Seder table that the magicians wanting to show off what they could do and not even consider the harm done to their people or to Pharaoh is yet another example of ego overtaking anything else, as you say, Rabbi stupid anger. 
Yeah. Thanks, Judy. Um, I see Joanna's hand and then we'll go to the next verse. All of a sudden, I just remembered something from years that I learned years and years ago. And um, I just Googled. And indeed, just as an FYI, in Egyptian mythology, there's a god called Hecate, which is a frog-headed goddess who personified generation, birth, and fertility. Mm. So we looked at Dom as, you know, attacking an Egyptian god. And it would be interesting to see how many of the 10 plagues in one way or another can be connected to Egyptian gods. Right. And, that, and so that the plagues are simultaneously defeating Egyptians, de- defeating yeah. Egypt and Egypt's pantheon. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really a, another, you know, all the ancient Middle Eastern, you know, origin myths like the Sumerian myths of, 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 of Tiamat and Ea and, you know, the, the, the gods fighting one another, uh, the result of which is the creation of the, of the earth. Some people see the, this whole narrative as the Jewish version, the Hebrew version of gods fighting the gods, right? Or gods fight God, God fighting those who think they are gods and that the plagues are representing not just um, uh, terrible circumstances for the Egyptians, but Egyptian divinities. Uh, Barbara, and then we're gonna be the next verse. <laughs> sorry. Why you, you know, <laughs> to stop you, um, when, when we read that the, the Priests, the magician priests brought forth things. It seems hard to understand, to me at least, that if the land is overrun by frogs or the land is overrun by lice or even blood is in the waters, how can you even notice that the Egyptian magician priests have added more? I mean, if, if it's overrun, how do we know that there's more? How do we know that they really were able to do it? It's, a, it's great, particularly since the end of verse two is Vatechas at Eretz Yisrael. They completely covered what, what's more than all is what you're asking, right? What, how do you add on to all? Interesting. Um, okay, uh, Rebecca, you were reading the previous verse, is that right? Will you read the next verse? This uh, second verse in a row with no Rashi, verse four. Okay. Vayikra faro l'moshe ula aharon vayomer Hatiru el Adonai vayaser hatsvardim mimeni ume ami vaashalcha et haam vayizbuchu ladonai. Pharaoh called to Moshe and to Aaron and said, uh, my translation says entreat, Good. entreat. Ayan taf resh means to entreat, plead, pray. Anyone know the first uh, time that this verb is used? I believe, let me pull it up, because you'll, you'll, recognize, you'll recognize as soon as you see it. Um, one second, let me share a screen. I should have pulled this up beforehand, I apologize. Uh, okay, so when Rivka is um, uh, barren, right? Verse 21, God pleaded with, uh, with God um, on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And then it's turned into a nifal, which sort of means God was successfully pleaded in his behalf. Like God got pleadified. God, it's a way of saying that God responded, but it's the, it's the, it's the word to plea turned into like a successful action, right? So here it's it coming in our verse, it's coming as a request from Pharaoh to Moses and Aaron, what they should do to God. And it means to plea or to entreat to God. Um, if we use the word entreat in modern English, it becomes a transitive verb that requires a direct object. If it's the word plea, it's an intransitive verb that, that has the indirect object. And, and that's why some people refer this as plea because you have the L, you have the preposition. And plea to God or appeal to God. Keep reading and then we'll call on Ilan by Yasser. Okay, um, appeal to God and uh, he will, or that he will remove the frogs 
from me and from my people. And I will send the people and they will sacrifice to God. Good. Right. So Pharaoh's had enough of this plague, calls Moses and Aaron, doesn't, by the way, tell his own magicians, can you stop it? Right. Even though they added to it. Um, just look for a second at the Aramaic. Uh, and, and he said to them, Tsalu. Tsalu, you might recognize that root, Tsari Lamed Yud, means to to pray in Aramaic, titkabel sloton uva oton, that, that, that line in the, in the, in the um, full Kaddish, right? May our sloton, our prayers, be received. So uh, Uncleus is understanding um, Hatiro directly as a pray, uh, prayer. Elon. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I just find it very interesting that Pharaoh's understanding of freeing the Israelites is only so that they can serve uh, God. And it's it's almost as if he's saying, yeah, they're my slaves now. And I get it. Uh, if you if you call off the dogs, they can be your slaves. There's no concept on Pharaoh's part that freeing the slaves uh, just for its own sake is is is, is a good thing. It's, he, it's, it, he's dealing with God as one slave owner to another. It's fascinating, Elon. I'll yes and you to that. I, I like, I love, and I'm taken by your image of, uh, of like the Torah pitting Pharaoh as God's antichrist, kind of, kind of like, like, like equal, but the opposite side of things. It's also the case that some of the times that Moshe is giving the rationale for why uh, the Pharaoh should release the Egyptians, the Israelites, is so that they can go into the desert and serve God. Like we had that, the last time we had that was verse 26, right? By Yom Adonai, in the previous chapter, God said to Moses, Boal Paro, go to Pharaoh, Vamartalehav, and say to him, this is the verse that is the quotation marks within the quotation marks, Ko Amar Adonai, thus saith God, Shalachetami, release my people by Avduni and they will serve me. So God is also using that language that, that I want them to go from serving a malevolent God to serving a beneficent God, but it's still going to be service. Right. And so Pharaoh. So, so in, 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 in the rabbinic writings is the freeing of the Israelites always put in, in, as that, that the, the purpose of their freeing is serving God, or is there a notion that actually no, that that the freeing of the, that being free in and of itself is is a positive thing? It's an astute question, Elon. It would not surprise me if every rabbi I know has once given a version of the sermon that says that that the end of the end of Seder is Shavuot. That the that the reason why Shavuot got the attention that it got in rabbinic literature is because the rabbis wanted to make it clear that the purpose of Exodus was not Exodus. The purpose of Exodus was reattaching to a sovereign at Mount Sinai, right? And that the Jewish, right? The, obviously we believe in freedom the way modern, modern liberal people use the word freedom, but the Jewish notion of freedom is being free to worship God, being free to be an Eved Hashem, being free to have your worship be meaningful and productive and impact your life, but not being free to do nothing, right? It's, it's, it's not the Western notion of I'm, I'm attached to no one. It's the freedom that comes from uh, monogamy, right? Monogamy, hopefully, is understood by most people who are in it as a, as a limiting bond through which you, you experience the most um, enhanced form of liberation. But it's not you're not you're not free to do anything you want with whoever you want. You're free to experience meaning through this one singular relationship. And I think the Jewish notion of the freedom from Egypt is for is primarily for that purpose. Not so then, so then, when when the civil rights movement in our country uses the Exodus story as a um, as an example of, of freeing, it's actually a poor analogy because our notion of freedom and the notion of freedom of slaves is 
being free to follow your own path. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a notion of being free to follow an, a different master. Right. I would say it's an imperfect analogy um, and it's being harnessed for a very, very good purpose, um, which is to um, rid the world of tyranny. But it's, it's, it's not it's not a perfect matchup. It's not a, it's not a homology. I'm not not a homology. It's an analogy. It's not a homology. And certainly part of the Exodus story is our having a commitment to identify and defeat the pharaohs of the world for sure. But it doesn't end there. That's the beginning. And then is now what are you recommitting yourself to? Now, it would be obnoxious for any person who had not been whose ancestors not enslaved to say to the person, the black person in the 1960s, yes, we're going to harness the Exodus story uh, on your behalf to have you be freed from the shackles. Now, what are you going to do with that freedom? Like, it, it, that, that would be a, a terrible, it would be a more apt, but a, a terrible harnessing of that, of, that, um, of that historical story, because the, because the first step in that is the release from tyranny. And we add a second step. I see Sue's hand. Microphone. Well, it just makes me think about the the tethering of the Omer on that path. That's like that that freedom. Then you're just pulled forward step by step to the next thing. Not to be, not Elon. Not to be on a different path. There's a one path, and it's count that Omer till you get there. Yeah. Just yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, Larry. I just had a light bulb moment. <clears throat> There's a there's a debate, this is a long-standing debate, but in contemporary political philosophy about the nature of liberalism. And there's there are many who from different perspectives think that liberalism is simply being able to lead out your own life as you see fit. And there are other liberals who say, no, not at all. There is, in some cases, a communitarian obligation. Mm. Your liberalism must be in pursuit of these greater goods for society. And this is a subject of a huge number of sub substack debates that I that I that I read, I'd never made the connection to Yitzhak um, Mitzrayim and to the then and to Sinai. Yeah, thanks for that, Larry. Um, we're almost out of time. So let me just add this one little idea. This is also not a perfect analogy, but it reminds me of it. The, the deeper I got into Eastern notions of mindfulness and, and, and meditative modes and their understanding of, of what rest is and how that applies to Jewish practice is similar in the sense that the, the Western 20th, 21st century notion of rest is, this is a terrible, you know, two weeks ago I would have said like a week on the beach in Maui, so I can't say that anymore, but like nothingness, <laughs> right? A beach chair, a Mai Tai, and nothing to do, that's rest. And that is rest on some level, right? Or bark a lounger and a remote control, or or a nap. That's that's modern Western rest. Spiritual rest that comes from the Eastern traditions that I think we have a notion of in Judaism as well is what one of my teachers called poised rest, right? When you're engaged in a moment of meditation or mindfulness, you're very much resting, but you're not slouching. You're not doing nothing. You're not relax. You're not relaxing. You're just resting your mind so that it can be fertile in new and different ways, right? And you're very focused and you're very awake and you're not nodding off, right? So there, there's a rest, which is the, the absence of work and obligations. I got nothing to do. And there's the rest that is as I'm harnessing the full power of my mind in a restful way to become a more grander version of a human being. There's freedom, which means no one, no one claims me, no one owns me, and no one should be owned and claimed by anyone that wants to enslave. And there's the freedom to serve a God, freedom to serve a na national purpose, right? Freedom to uh, attach your life to something lofty, which you can only do if you're free. You can only do that if you're not owned by a tyrant. But once you're not owned by a tyrant, our sense is, okay, what, what, what are you gonna make of this freedom? So I'm so grateful to that, for that question. Uh, Rick, last comment, then I wanna make one logistical announcement. Just one thing on, on what Larry just said. I know he likes making roads. So yeah, you can make roads and you can be free to drive wherever you want, but you gotta stay on your side of the road. You can't just drive all over the place. You'll crash into people. So there has to be some, some uh, kind of uh, 
guardrails on the freedom. So that is. Uh, on that note, most years, um, this would have been the last class before high holidays. Could I take Elul to really pull back and focus on Yamin Yorim? Uh, because there have been a lot of canceled class this summer, I'm going to add two more. So it'll be class the first two Wednesdays of Elul, a week from today, because Elul starts Friday, and two weeks from today. And then I'll pull back, and the next time we'll meet after that is Cholomoid Sukkot. So I'll send this in an email, but we will meet in person and on, online for those who want, both next week, whatever that date is, I don't know what it is, and the week after that. Sue? I discovered that I had two of these Torah Chaim, you know, one stars in my bag, and I really only own one. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was inadvertent. I don't know whose this is. It Can says on the side, Beth. It says, Beth Shalom. It says Beth Shalom. That's mine. Oh, because that's this is a gift from my Saba, and he was the because he was the rabbi of Beth Shalom. I I hope he didn't steal it from his shul. Um, but this I has been this has been on my it. shelf for twenty five years. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, be well, everyone. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.